Well, good morning. Okay, that's my water there. Thank you. Uh, great to be with you this morning. We do know some folks here. I'm looking for Pat Nieto, and I noticed uh, I got to catch up with one of the Harveys, and I went to school with uh, the Harveys, so it's kind of neat to uh, connect with folks from uh, all different stages of life. I know Pastor Mark has been um, preaching through Acts, right? Is that right? Okay, so I just want to make sure that was right, because I want to open up just with a, a quick scripture from the book of Acts that really talks about this theme of transforming the mind. And I just want to thank the team up there, especially Steve and Dave, for uh, helping uh, get us all set up this morning in kind of a unique tech arrangement, so I appreciate that. Um, and poor Steve up there has to follow my cues and change the slides when he thinks they need to be changed. So uh, I, that, was an actual, that was our signal, but don't do it yet. I'm just pointing you out. This is going to be rough, but we're going to be okay. One of my favorite uh, passages in Acts is the story when Paul was waiting for his companions to join him, and he was waiting in Athens. And um, as he's waiting for them, it says in Acts chapter uh, 17 and verse 16, it, and I just want to read a couple verses here to set the stage for what we're going to talk about this morning. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So as we're reading this, we get this picture of Paul sitting at, I don't know, um, at the mall. You ever sat at the mall? And uh, as you were there, has your spirit been provoked? Right? You know, you sit and you see the things that go on in culture around us. And uh, if we are, you know, people of the Lord, serving him, following him, our spirits, our inner man, our inner woman should be deeply provoked by what we see. We should be uncomfortable. We should be, at times, frustrated. We should have uh, some challenge in our spirits as we see what's going on around us. But what I love about this particular passage and this particular story with Paul is how he responds to that. Uh, many times we think that if our spirit is provoked because of things around us, uh, we ought to do the most spiritual thing possible. And maybe that might be to pray or you know, call a prayer meeting of the church, and I think that's a very good thing to do uh, when our spirits are provoked as we see what's going on around us. But in this particular case, Paul did not call a prayer meeting. He didn't start a 30-day fast to transform Athens, although those would have all been good things. But let's look at what he says it, the scripture says that he did, and then we're going to apply that to us today throughout uh, our talk this morning. Here's what happens. While Paul was, I'm going to reread verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So we find Paul's response to being provoked in his spirit um, was not to do some of those traditional spiritual things that we normally do, but actually to engage the culture around him with reasoning. So he essentially started an argument tour or a debate tour. And I know from, we all know from the life of Paul, uh, he would do that in the most appropriate way possible. But in response to seeing what was going on in his culture, he didn't run back to a safe place. He ran right out to engage the thoughts and the, and the idols that were in 
that culture. And that's really what we're going to talk about this morning with this idea of transforming the mind. So go ahead and change it, Steve, and we'll get our, uh, our signals down here well in a minute. So I want to share this quote, and I want you to just think about when perhaps this might have been written. Uh, this is no day for disorganized minds to be flapping loosely in the breezes of daily impulse. If you got it, you should be smiling by now. If, and I know it might take a couple minutes to get that. This is no day for disorganized minds to be flapping loosely in the breezes of daily impulse. Now, I would change this quote a little bit to say, this is no day for people's minds in the church to be disorganized and flapping in the breezes of daily impulse because I, I, I would imagine you agree that our culture is just this. It's just disorganized minds flapping in the breezes going wherever the, the impulses happen to be. This was not written recently, actually. This was written, written in a thin little book called The Disciplined Life, and it was written in the early 1960s. So if there was someone in the church advocating for us to have clear thinking about our culture and to be very decisive in how we view the idols of our culture and to harness the great gift of our minds to engage the culture, if this was written back in the 60s, how much more is it applicable today when the winds are no longer just winds, but they're gale force breezes around us, blowing the church, blowing the culture in many, many different ways? Well, just recently, there was a, a survey done, actually a couple of years ago, if you can change the next slide, uh, where George Barna and his team surveyed teens and young adults to find out where they stood morally on certain issues. And I want to just demonstrate some of the breezes of our culture and, uh, and kind of unpack some of these. So if we can go to the first one here, stealing. I wonder how many people, teens, young adults, back in 2015 thought stealing was morally wrong. This is what this survey asked. It asked these young people, what percentage of you believe these things are morally wrong? So the first one, stealing, 88%. All right, do we feel good about that, or is that not such good news? You know, at first read, it's like, great, 88%. Well, I don't want that other 12% working on my house, serving me at the store, uh, right? 88% is not real good in our culture to think that, eight, that 12% of teens and young adults are running around saying it's not morally wrong at all to lie. I mean, to steal. Let's go to the next one. Lying. You think this is any better? No, it's actually worse, 71%. So only 71%, that means 29% of teens and young adults have no problem with lying. On to the next one. <laughs> right? And I'm doing these in order. This is the order that they came. Not recycling. Now, before we give the answer to this, notice we're going down in the percentages. And just think about the messages that have been extended to teens and young adults of today all throughout their lives. I don't hear too much in the culture that would suggest that we're trying to immerse our teens in a world in which that's lying is wrong. Do you? I, I, don't, I don't think so. In fact, I think our students are immersed in a culture that says lying is okay, especially in those areas where it might benefit yourself. So if we think about recycling, uh, I can even think of children. So I can't, let me put it this way. I can't think of a single secular children's song that talks about the dangers of lying. Do you know, are you familiar with Joe Scruggs? 
I don't know, some of you maybe with kids my age, uh, our kids' age would remember Joe Scruggs. He's kind of like a secular uh, children's minstrel sort of a guy. And he's got this one song that just pounds away in my brain because we used to listen to it repeatedly. R-E-C-Y-C-L-E, we must recycle you and me. You, know, you, don't, you don't know that song? Well, children's songs about recycling. Well, it has had its effects in the culture. Look at this. 56% say it's morally wrong. So they're, they're putting this issue of not recycling right in the top four of issues in our culture. So let's go on to the next one and see how many say that um, watching sexually explicit TV and movies is morally wrong. And go ahead and put that percentage up there. So we've got a generation of teens and young adults who are more concerned about the moral implications of not recycling than watching sexually explicit TVs and movies. So if we're like Paul, if we're modern-day Pauls, and I'm kind of exposing you to the marketplace of ideas this morning, I hope your spirit is deeply provoked within you. Because essentially, what we're talking about is the idols of our day may not be stone or granite things set up on street corners, but they're idols of ideas that have profound consequences in behavior to where we have a generation of kids that are much more concerned with whether you recycle or not and for the environment than whether you expose yourself to sexually explicit movies and TVs. So I've, I've shared these with you, hopefully to get you a little provoked in your spirit. But the, the answer Paul gives us, and, and don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that 30-day fasts uh, to transform the culture are not good. In fact, those things are good. And I would suggest we continue to do them and do them even more so. I'm not suggesting that calling prayer meetings of the church to pray against the idols of the culture are not good. We should do those even more. In fact, I don't often hear of prayer meetings at church anymore for things like that. So maybe that's something to provoke us a little bit. But what Paul tells us here, or his example, is that we've got to have our minds transformed so we can understand what's going on in our culture and we can engage those ideas with valid ideas that more reflect a biblical way of thinking about these issues. So let's talk a little bit more, and you can change to the next slide, about this idea of worldviews, because all of those uh, percentages of students or young adults that feel that way about certain things are not just cherry-picking those ideas, but they actually have an underlying system or way of thinking that kind of bubbles up to the top in these areas that we just looked at, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. This idea of worldviews. Uh, David Nogle, an author on worldviews, a very popular uh, worldview author, says Christianity is a comprehensive worldview as opposed to a collection of bits and pieces of beliefs and actions. And what we're saying here is that our faith is much more than kind of a random set of moral standards or even uh, things that we're supposed to do, good things that we're supposed to do. Christianity offers a comprehensive and intelligent reason for reality in everything around us. And you can choose to look through life and world events and current events through a biblical worldview that's informed by Scripture, shaped by Scripture, or you can choose to look through it, uh, look through a filter of some of the idea systems in our world. What Paul's encouragement to us through his example is that we've got to be thinking and looking at the world through a scriptural lens, or else we'll not be effective at reasoning against the idols and challenges that our world faces. 
So you can go on to the next one. I want to talk a little bit about a worldview is, and go to the next. There's a couple pictures here, so you can scroll through three here. Next one, too. Uh, the picture on the right, though it's not terribly clear, is a picture of what we call substrate, which anyone in civil engineering or building or architecture understand that. It's really a geological term that refers to the surface or material on which or from which an organism lives, grows, or obtains its nourishment. So that's what a substrate is. And a worldview uh, can be likened to one of these substrates. And this phrase up here is kind of hard to say. Um, I challenge you to maybe say it five times fast, right? Super sensible substrate. What this means is that the substrate of your life or that unseen area from which you live and move and have your being, sounds kind of scriptural, right? Is largely beyond the senses even of yourself. That, that place that you get nourishment, the place where the roots of your life are anchored is often unexamined. And we haven't really thought through what's there. For many of us, it's just a pile of stuff that's been put there over the years by our parents, by our experience, and it becomes the stuff of which our roots go down into. The interesting thing with a substrate in geological terms is it's a place that the roots of a, an organism go down into, but it's also the place from which, so it's more than just a foundation, it's also the place from which that nutrients and minerals go up into the organism. So that unseen foundation of our lives, that place that's filled with ideas and thoughts and concepts, often put there uh, very much like a backhoe just pushing debris around, is the place from which we live and move and have our being. It's what animates us. It's what makes us respond the way we respond to crises or challenges, our substrates, or in better terms, perhaps, our worldview. Our purpose this morning is to think deeply about that, that concept and ultimately to evaluate the substrate of our own lives and say, have I done the hard work of making sure that the substrate or the worldview upon which my life is built and from which I draw nourishment and resources and minerals, is that a solid, biblically founded substrate? Or is it just a collection of random thoughts and ideas and things I've caught, much like you catch a cold? And sometimes that's how ideas are passed on, much like a, a virus, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So let's go on to this next slide here uh, that talks about a definition of worldview, and then I want to show you another picture. But a worldview is a foundational pattern of ideas, convictions, habits upon which a person's life is built. That's what a worldview is. And I have another picture here, Steve, if you can switch to the next one. This is the one that people always go, ah, now I get it. When you see this picture, you realize that with an iceberg, there's only a very small percentage relative to the size of the entire iceberg that's actually above the surface of the water. Most of what it makes up your life and is the motivation for your decisions and the way you think is something that we don't see just like with an iceberg. It's below the surface. Worldviews, and we'll move on to the next slide. Worldviews answer several questions. You can click right through all these, Steve. That would be helpful right to there. Yep, perfect. Worldviews answer these five questions uh, that, that we have as human beings. What am I? Who am I? Where am I? Why am I? And how am I? And these are questions 
that I would encourage you to begin using. Now remember, as we're thinking about Paul sitting in Athens, think about you sitting anywhere in your life and being provoked in your spirit. Have you ever been watching a movie and you get provoked in your spirit because, wow, that, that just does not sound what they're saying in that movie, does not sound like what I believe. It's likely because that movie answered one of these questions or several of these questions in a way that is different from how Scripture would answer those questions. And in fact, I find this to be a very helpful grid to evaluate the worldview behind movies. Now, I may have to even just spend time convincing you, and I don't think I have to, but I may have to convince you that all movies, all music, all newscasts, all politicians actually have a worldview. And they're making statements through what they say and what they present to you. So you can think of any movie that you've watched, any book you've read, any media you've consumed, and ask these questions. What is this saying about the nature of humans? What are human beings? Are they God's crown to his creation made in the image of Jesus Christ? Or are they just a product of natural processes over time? You can tell what people think by watching what they say. Who am I? My identity. And you can go right down. That one's a big one. Who am I? In today's culture, we're... we're and I, I, I noticed... I think I noticed it... I uh, can't remember where I was. I think I was in the men's room. And I think something was on the wall about a workshop you're having here for those who love and are caring for people who are going through identity challenges with homosexuality or transgenderism. That's a worldview issue. And only Scripture answers the question of who we actually are, our identity. And so those issues are worldview issues. People that are wrestling with, with those alternate lifestyles have had some bad ideas put into their substrate and they're deriving nourishment from it. And that is where they live and move and have their being. So you as a church already are aware of that. You're already working on that. You're already providing support for that. Where am I? Where is our place in history? Why am I here? What's my purpose? And finally, how am I? What is right and wrong? You can click to that next uh, animation there, Steve. Really, we're asking the question is, what is real? What is real? And because you're here this morning, I'm going to make an assumption. You would not be here in this place, hopefully, unless you were attracted to the idea that God, through the revelation of Scripture, is the only one who can really answer the question of what is real. You've based your lives on that. You've made some crazy decisions in the eyes of the world because you believe you have a rock-solid confidence that God is the one who answers that, only one who can answer that question of what is real. That's essentially what a worldview is. It helps us to answer these questions really with that main question, what is real, being the guiding question behind it all. I want to share a couple of scriptures from Isaiah chapter 44, which really um, helps us understand our purpose here this morning. And these are uh, from a time, another time in history, when the culture was full of idols. It wasn't just in Paul's time. It's not just in our time. It was also in Isaiah's time. And he was preaching. He was calling out to a people much like you this morning saying, you've got to look at what you believe and see if you haven't picked up some of these idolatrous lies from the culture around us. Now you think about what a lie is. The simple definition of a lie is that which is not true. Or it doesn't reflect reality. Remember, God is the only one who can help us see what's real. 
And looking at the world through a biblical worldview is the only way to see what's real. So a lie is not just, you know, when we fudge things on our taxes. A lie is truly when we've embraced something about the world that is not true and it becomes a motivating force for how we live our lives. And Isaiah the prophet was calling out to people just like ourselves, just like the people of Paul's day, saying, look at what is in your worldview because you may have picked up lies along the way. Here's how he says it. He says, no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Now, what he's talking about here is the stupidity of idolatry. And if if you're an idol worshiper, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to offend you this morning. I'm probably going to provoke you a little bit to say idolatry in its most basic human form is illogical. And your mind, if you've picked up an idol, your mind needs to be transformed to see exactly what it is you're holding. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. And what he's saying is, and I wish I would have brought a hunk of wood. I should have. And there's none around here I can pick up. But he's calling out to the people of his day saying, how illogical to burn this to keep warm. And imagine I'm holding a piece of wood. You're, you're burning it to keep warm. You're baking something on its coals. And then you take what's left of it and you fashion it into an idol. He's saying idolatry is illogical. But when you look at it through a secular worldview or a pagan worldview, it makes all kinds of sense. But if you look through the bedrock truth of Scripture, it's illogical. And here's what he challenges us to do. Can you go to the next slide there? I'm sorry, I uh, meant to bring that slide up. There we are. He says this, and go on to the next one. In 44, this is how he describes, 44, 19 through 20, this is how he describes, go on to the next slide there, uh, someone who carries around an idol. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? I love how Isaiah does this. I love really how the Holy Spirit had Isaiah do it. He's saying that an idol, that which he's carrying around, based on a certain set of ideas, is a literal lie. What he's carrying around is a lie. So the challenge to us as, as believers today is to kind of inventory the way we look at things, the ideas that you and I carry around, and say to ourselves, God, are there some things that I've incorporated into the way I view the world that are actually not true? They don't match up with reality as Scripture teaches it. Now, we live in a day of raging, competing worldviews where all around us there's alternative ways to look at the world. And they are, just like Christianity, they're comprehensive schemes or filters through which you can look at something and come at a completely different conclusion than someone who's a believer in Christ and has a biblical worldview. And this is one of the places to start. It's to say, God, I I want you to do just what Isaiah is saying here. Help me look at what's in my hands. Help me look at the things I've taken as true. Help me to see if there's any lies in there. And one of the great ways to find out if you're holding a lie is to compare it with what people who do not believe in Christ hold in their hands and see if we might have some lies in our own lives, in our churches. 
And so I just want to share with you quickly some of the competing worldviews today. So let's go to this first uh, screen here. Worldviews all, if you could read them in a book, they'd read like a great novel. A worldview basically tells you what's wrong with the world, that's the crisis, and it tells you how to fix it or what the solution, and all good books are like that, right? There's some kind of catastrophe, some challenge, and our hero is trying to make it right. That's what all worldviews do, and I want to just show you a couple ones that I hope you'll say, oh yeah, I see that in existence all the time around me. I see it at work. I see it in my cousin. I see it in my, uh, you know, my brother, maybe, who doesn't know Christ, you know, your little brother. You'll see some of these in the world around us. And each one answers a question of, what is wrong with the world? Because there's nobody, well, maybe a few people, that walk around saying everything is exactly the way it should be in the world. Do you know anyone that reads the paper, watches the news, or watches Washington, or watches the seats of power in our country around the world and says, wow, things are going just the way they're supposed to? Do you know anybody that does that? And you and I, we both were unsaved at one time, right? There was a time in our lives we weren't following Christ. And I walked around thinking that I could fool everyone into thinking that I thought everything was the way it was supposed to be, right? So even if people think they think that way, deep down inside they're like I was before I had fully submitted my life to Christ. My heart was just terrible, and I knew it. And even on the outside I presented, hey, everything is the way it should be. I knew deep within because I have the image of God implanted on me that things are not the way they're supposed to be. So let's look at some of these worldviews and see how they answer this question. The first one, oh, go back, one back, sorry, is secularism. And they say, the secularist and people who believe there's no God and don't want anyone to believe there's a God, they say that the problem with our world is that too many people believe there's a God. And if we could just stamp out that mythological antique legend ancient legend of there being a God, then everything would really clean itself up well. One of the famous uh, secularist atheists uh, died several years ago from cancer. His name was Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens has written multiple books to prove that the root of all evil is religion. He's, he's been so bold to say people like Mother Teresa and other famous people that really lived out a life of, of religious devotion have been the cause of all the evil in the world. Now, you've got to do some mental calisthenics to get to that point, but he's done them. And his, he, he was a militant, aggressive atheist trying to stamp out a belief in God, trying to prove that all evil in the world has actually come from people who believe in God and hold on to that mythological past idea and this is just a little meme I found on Facebook once. It says, yeah, you pray for me and I'll do the thinking for you. You hear what that's saying? You know, so this would be an atheist response to someone like us that says, hey, I'll be praying for you. They might turn around and say, yeah, you pray for me and I'll think for you with a little bit of an attitude. And so the, the secular world around us is doing its best to stamp out this ancient and time-worn outdated, outmoded belief in God. And this worldview dominates in science and ethics. At least in America, we see that. In fact, there are one of the most, I should say it this way, one of the most risky professions to go into if you're an outspoken Christian now is academia. 
And we've seen that time and time again. There have been some really good documentaries and things like that from a Christian perspective that have showed us these tremendous men and women of God who are physicists and biochemists who have stood up to base their research on the reality that God exists and they find themselves losing tenure at universities and losing jobs and being pushed out and marginalized to the side. And I just say to those of you that have any influence on young people, we desperately need young people to go into those kinds of fields and to really be, and I don't want to put it too dramatically because they're not literal martyrs, but maybe professional martyrs in a sense, where they're willing to stand up for what's right and true and base their research, base their concepts of the universe and how things work on a belief in God, because that is getting completely pushed out of science and ethics today. So that's, that's the first one. There, the way that a secularist would answer the question of what's wrong with things is that if we could just get rid of God from the equation. Let's go on to the next one, and that's Islam. A rebellion against Allah is the problem. Now, as a, as a Muslim would look out at the world and say, yeah, things are just not the way they should be, as they look through their windows, so to speak, they would say, well, the problem is that everyone in the world needs to submit to Allah, and if they did, everything would be exactly the way it was supposed to be. And so they take that one step further and are on a quest to force everyone through whatever means possible to submit to Allah. Now, we as believers often have a hard time understanding geopolitical crises around the world, but this is coming to dominate many of the, the hottest crises of our day. And I'm not sure our State Department fully understands this. I'm not sure people in Washington fully understand that this is as much a spiritual clash of worldviews as it is uh, a geopolitical crisis. Islam is growing at a tremendous rate, and not only because it, it offers a religious set of do's and don'ts, but because it's a comprehensive way of looking at the world that people buy into and end up letting become the substrate of their lives, dominates in current geopolitical crises. Let's go on to the next one. Marxism, we thought communism was dead, right? Well, there's a new brand of Marxism that really dominates, in, growing in dominance in politics. And here's what Karl Marx said about really what's wrong with reality. And that's Karl Marx, nice beard, mustache on the side. Uh, the communists openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. The working class have nothing to lose but their chains. Now, we might have, we'd have to really unpack this for a long time. We don't have time for that. But I think you could probably identify um, in politics today more and more what is not called communism but certainly is based on a Marxist view of things that what's wrong with the world is that the big guy is beating down the little guy. Now, that is true. The big guys often beat down the little guys. But I would not say that is a reliable lens through which to look at all of the challenges in our culture. And the problem with alternate worldviews is they often have some truth to them. And we can easily get sucked into them. But Marxism, Karl Marx is, is alive, he's not, but his thinking processes and the worldview that he articulated through the, uh, the communist movement is actually alive and well today under some different names and different uh, disguises. But the thought process behind it is alive and well. Let's go on to the next one. New spirituality. Here's the problem that someone who's either a pantheist or in New Age would say is the problem with the world, is that not believing that we are God is the problem. And I know you can't read that, because if you did, you'd already be chuckling. 
Um, it says, uh, you are not a drop in the ocean, you are the entire ocean in a drop. And I just picked that one out as one of those uh, kind of humorous Facebook memes that talk about the idea of we are all divinity within us. And if we could just tap into our inner good and our inner divinity, everything would be fixed in the world. This dominates in pop psychology and in the entertainment culture of our day. These are some of the alternate worldviews that as you're sitting in your Athens, you need to be very aware of what these idols are and what the idols are suggesting that people bow down to. And this is another one of them. I want to spend a little bit more time on the last one here, and we're coming close to wrapping up here, uh, with postmodernism, because this one dominates in art, and it dominates and has almost taken over in education. And of course, I'm very passionate about education um, because of the influence that education has on our children. Do you know that from K to 12, children spend over 16,000 hours in school? 16,000 hours. There's a law in, uh, uh, I, I put that in, in quotes, there's a law of uh, professional development that says you need to be doing something for 10,000 hours to be considered an expert at it. So if you're a carpenter and you're, you're an apprentice carpenter, after about 10,000 hours of doing it, people say, well, you've reached a level where you're a professional. So students in America are spending 10,000 plus another 6,000, so almost twice as much time in school, what are they becoming adept at? They're spending that many hours doing it. In our secular government-run educational system, they're becoming adept at thinking postmodern thoughts. And postmodernism says that the belief in objective truth is the problem. If we'd all just throw off this crazy idea that there is objective truth accurately reflects reality, we'd all be doing much better. Because what a postmodernist would say, there is no truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. I won't be offended when you say what your truth is, and please don't be offended when I say what my truth is, and we're supposed to coexist with all these alternate pictures of reality around us, and that's what um, education is, is full of. It dominates in education. The guy you probably don't recognize here, his name is Joss Whedon. He is the director, creator of the Avengers movie franchise which uh, some of us may have seen and enjoyed at certain levels. Here's what he said. He said, all worthy work is open to interpretations the author did not intend. Art isn't your pet, it's your kid. It grows up and talks back to you. All right, so what this means is you can go to the you know, MoMA, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and you can look at a piece of artwork, and you can have an interpretation of it, and someone can come up next to you and say something totally different. Okay, maybe we can allow for that. But what he's saying is that art does not reflect the author's original intent. It reflects the interpretation of the people looking at it. So I like to write short stories. So I've written a bunch of short stories. You know what? I have to admit, if that's an art form, which it is of sorts, I had an intent when I was writing it. And please don't misinterpret my intent when you read it. Don't bring your idea of what it means to it, because that's not why I wrote it. That's not why I chose the characters of the story. It was something that I wanted to say in the way that I wanted to say it. Appreciate it or hate it, but don't change it. Now, where does this make any sense for us, or where does this apply in the church? Unfortunately, many in the church have been raised in a postmodern culture and approach Scripture the same way. 
We've come to a place where many churches around the country, around the island, are saying, the Scripture isn't your pet, it's your kid. It grows up and talks back to you. That the Scripture is open to the interpretations that the author never intended. And we could look at a number of the cultural idols of our day that have infiltrated the church, and we could see it's because they've taken a postmodern view of Scripture. And the postmodern view of Scripture is that you cannot reliably know what the author intended. Therefore, you are free to interpret it based on your own experience. You ever seen that in the church? I'm sure, you know, I would hope you haven't seen it here with Pastor Mark and the elder team you have in here. They're vigilantly keeping that at bay, keeping that idol outside, but churches all over. Whole denominations have given way to this concept of postmodernism that says there's no absolute truth, so the best we can do is just read the Scripture and overlay it with our experience and look at it through the lens of our own current experience and that they actually had no intention of us believing something that was in the author's original intent. When I was in Bible school back in the 80s, um, I, I remember very few things from my classes, I have to admit. But one of the things I remember, it was drilled into me by my professor, who was not a postmodernist, was that Scripture can never mean what it never meant. So you can't take Scripture and twist it and reinterpret it for a new age and a new day. You can only go back to what God originally intended. So I reject what Mr. Whelan says here when it comes to Scripture and, incidentally, art as well. So we could have many examples of, of different areas. I'll share this one. This one's really startling. If you can go on to the next one. Uh, this is a book, I, Rigoberta Menchu. It was written back in the 90s, and the author of this actually won a Nobel Peace Prize for writing this book in the early 90s. In this book, she documents the story of her family in Guatemala who, um, who were, were, were oppressed, brutally oppressed by the Guatemalan government back in the, in the 80s and early 90s. Now, we know that is true. We know that that happened, and it's a terrible thing that happened. This became one of the most popular uh, sociology books in secular universities all across America. She won, like I said, she won a Nobel Peace Prize. So at one point, uh, some smart professor was reading the book and said, you know, there's some things in here that seem inconsistent. So what they did was they sent a research, a research team down to Guatemala to research the stories she told in the book. Specifically, one story, a gruesome story in the book, is of her brother being brutally murdered at the hands of Guatemalan uh, uh, officials in a particular village. Well, the more they dug into the story behind it, the more they found that just about the entire book was made up. It was not true. And so when she was confronted with it, she didn't retract anything. The Nobel uh, Committee didn't retract anything. And here's a quote from a professor who was questioned about this, another professor. He said, well, whether her book is true or not, I don't care. We should just teach our students about the brutality of the Guatemalan government. But my problem with this is not that they used a fictitious work to teach something. The problem is that they refused to say it was a fictitious work, like uh, uh, historical fiction. They, they had no problem with the fact that she had lied throughout the whole book, represented it as truth, because the, the bottom line for them was that they were trying to teach something. 
And that's really what we find in our universities all around. It's, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not because we're making a point. Now, should we be teaching students about the brutal Guatemalan dictatorship that hurt people? Of course, if that's a historical reality that needs to be taught, absolutely. But do you see the slippery slope we're on? So anyone can make the truth be anything. And in fact, in our culture, if you say something as true enough times, eventually people believe it as true. Can you see how our current culture has bowed to idols? And we need Christian, young, old alike, who are willing to stand up in Athens like Paul was and reason based on truth. I have another example, but we're going to pass that one by, and I want to just uh, hit right to uh, the biblical worldview here. So just go two slides ahead um, to Christianity as really the, the worldview that I would trust you believe is the one that that most accurately fits with the realities of the world the way we see them. And Christianity is a simple story that says sin is the problem. And if you can click through all the little animations on this one, uh, Christianity is so simple. It starts with creation, goes to corruption, and they all begin with C, so it makes it really easy to remember it. Creation, where everything was perfect. Garden of Eden was the ideal of the way everything was supposed to be. What went wrong? Sin went wrong. And we ended up to corruption, then we, on the, the restoration path, covenant with the people of Israel, which led to Christ and the cross, and will ultimately lead to consummation, where we will be returned to what Eden was like in perfect fellowship with God, as long as we embrace this as reality. My question to you is, where does this dominate now? Where does this worldview dominate? Awkward silence, huh? I think in 2017, it's really hard to find a place where Christianity actually dominates as, as the worldview that animates any, any arena of society. And unfortunately, like I shared before, in many churches, it no longer dominates. So we as Paul are in our current day Athens our spirits are provoked, and what will we do? Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, we read some scripture from Romans 12 this morning, but Romans 12 verse 2 says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. And if I look at that in Paul's view at Athens, he's saying to us, be so careful that you do what Isaiah said, and look at the lies that might be in your hands and say, have I just, have I let my substrate my worldview be impacted such by the world around me that I couldn't even get up and debate it in Athens if I wanted to because my mind, the way I think about reality, has not been transformed by Scripture. So as you, I, I assume most of you have a daily quiet time and devotions and times when you seek the Lord and you're reading Scripture. Can I invite you to do that in a little different way and not merely look at it devotionally for inspiration, but look at it from a worldview perspective and say, God, what are you teaching me about how the world works? What are you teaching me about what is right and true? My destiny as a human being, my place in human history. Who I am, am I made in the image of God or am I not? And take your scripture reading and your seeking of the Lord and even your listening to sermons to just a one step deeper to purposefully, intentionally, and biblically construct a worldview that transforms those places in your mind where you've picked up lies 
from the culture, from your family, or elsewhere. I'm going to invite David to come back, and as he comes, uh, I'm just going to pray a quick prayer, and then I'm going to pray again at the end of benediction. But Lord, we just are saying, search our hearts this morning. Search our minds. Help us to see where we have picked up things from the culture that are not reflective of your view of reality. Lord, we're bombarded by idols around us. May we be provoked in our spirits, but may we do the heavy lifting of really evaluating, as Isaiah said, are there lies in our hands? Do this work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.